welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on Books About Place at ryanmurdoch.com. My current home base of Berlin has always been a uniquely nonconformist corner of a remarkably orderly country. It was capital of Prussia, but its rulers didn't want to live here. It came to symbolize Nazi Germany, but Hitler despised its rebellious, irreverent, free-thinking people. And for more than 40 years, it was a symbol of freedom in the face of tyranny. But how did this flat, unpromising patch of sand become the most interesting city on the continent? That's what we'll explore in today's podcast. I'm joined by Lieutenant General Sir Barney White Spunner, who's written a new book on the city. Barney spent many years in Germany while serving with the British Army. He commanded the Household Cavalry and later the British Airborne Forces. He led British and multinational forces in the Balkans, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and he ended his highly distinguished career as commander of the British Field Army. He's the author of Berlin, The Story of a City. It's a wonderfully readable book filled with interesting characters that I found impossible to put down. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. So why Berlin? Why did you choose to write a book about this city? Because <laughs> it's such a wonderful city. Uh, it's such a fascinating city. I, it is, to, to me, of all the European cities, it is the most, um, it's most exciting. It's the, in many ways, the most important. It's the most different. It's the um, the most eventful. And if you look at, um, I mean, I'm a historian by background, and if you look at Europe's history, I mean, so much of the major uh, the major events, the major movements that have shaped Europe actually originate in Berlin. Mm. Um, if you go, let's go way back, you know, to, to being on the, the frontier, if you like, of what was sort of the Roman world and mm. and, and, the, and the barbarian world, um, it, it, you're on the mark, you're, you're on the the, the, the the border, if you like, between um, the arable lands and the forests and the the lakes um you're on the border then between the roman world and 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 uh, and everything to the east you're then um you you're on, on the border of the holy roman empire um you're on the border of the trading routes um it's, it's a great crossover of the trading routes from the Hanseatic cities down into central germany and then the east into poland um then it's on the the border between um catholicism and and and, and the reformation it's where the reformation arguably starts i mean obviously luther is a saxon but actually it is the tetzels um selling indulgences to finance one of the hohenzollern's archbishopric in in mainz and actually leads to to the turns um luther to to nail his famous theses to a church door um then you have the 30 years war which i think is probably the one event that shapes europe modern europe um, much more than we realize, certainly shapes modern Germany much more than we realize. You know, it's actually Berlin that suffers and is affected by the Thirty Years' War more than any other city, I think, in Germany. Um, then you have um, Berlin as the Hohenzollern capital, the center of what becomes Prussia, um, the Prussian kingdom, and then becomes the German Empire. It is um, where Marx um, experiences such horrific conditions in the 19th century that he goes off to London, writes Communist Manifesto. Um, it is then um, fairly obviously a city where um, fascism, sadly, you know, has its roots as well. Um, so, you know, to me, everything has happened in Berlin. 
And I, I just love this. I first went there as a as a soldier. I was um, in in the army, in the British Army on the Rhine, um, and one of the first things I did was take the military train um, up through what was then East Germany into Berlin. And I was wet behind the ears. I was just at university, and suddenly this was the real world. This was a world, you know, which I might have read about, but I had no idea. I never saw seen it sort of front up. And you, you came come to this city. Um, this sort of bright light, if you like, in the middle of that grey world of a DDR. Um, and it just electrified me then, and I've just loved it ever since. I just, it's just sort of, I've always been spellbound by it, and I've lived there for periods on off, or lived there, I've served there in the army. I've been there as often as I can um, ever since. But writing about it just gives you, just so much of European history comes into it, not just German history. So... You know, actually, a historian, it's a gift to write about because, you know, I could have written about 10 volumes. I don't think the publishers would be very pleased. But, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, there's so much here. I mean, it's impossible. It's impossible to cover even a general overview of the yeah. story of Berlin in, in a podcast. But I wanted to try to draw out some of the core themes um, that sort of capture the essence of the city. And you mentioned geography for a place that's been at the center of so many events. It's really peripherally located. Like, it seems... Um, such an unlikely place for an important city like this. That's so true. And one of the things which, again, fascinated me is why do two fairly small fishing villages on the Spray, well, let's face it, the Spray is a pretty insignificant stream, mm. really. You can't compare it to the Elbow or the Oder or the Rhine. No, it's, it's, it's not a great river. How do those two fishing villages suddenly become what is at one point the largest city in Europe? And it is in the 19th century. Um, so... I, I think part of the answer to that is, of course, being on the frontier, being on the mark, gives it that importance. Um, the Hohenzollerns uh, buy the, the 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 mark of Brandenburg from the Emperor Sigismund. Um, Emperor Sigismund, like all good emperors, is bust. So the Hohenzollerns are rich and successful family from Nuremberg. They buy it. And, of course, by making it their capital, um, actually you then link the fortunes of the city and the fortunes of a dynasty. And of course, when you look at Prussia at its greatest extent, actually Berlin's in the middle. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I often wondered why is Berlin so far east as the cap- capital of Germany yeah. around the Polish border, but uh, yeah. it would have been right in the center of Prussia. So, it, and of course, the capital of Prussia was even further east. It was at Königsberg, uh, right up until Frederick I moved it to Berlin, but when he became king in Prussia while an elector of Brandenburg. Um, and people also forget that Prussia went, of course, right over to the Rhine. So um, an awful lot of, um, of what we just think of modern Germany, so the area, the Ruhrgebiet, um, Bielefeld, uh, places like that, they all came into the Hohenzollern through. Hohenzollerns were good marriers. You know, they had their heads screwed on. Um, and all those um, um, all those territories came in um, then in the early 17th century. So actually, you know, it arguably, you could argue the capital of Berlin is a more Western capital than Königsberg. And of course, it's only after the Second World War that it becomes um, rarely right. It becomes on 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 the border of the free world, but on the border with Poland. I mean, it's a really interesting point you make because I think a lot of people in Europe don't realise just how much those Eastern influences creep in, and I think you see them in German policy making today. You know, German German politicians see things both ways, east and west, in a way that I don't think happens in Paris or London. Uh, I think that 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 influence is is strong. Yeah, it does feel very much like a city that faces east. Yeah, east. Uh, it does, doesn't it? It has that sort of 
I mean, it's like Vienna, which is another city I love. You know, you can't go to Vienna, I don't think, without realizing it also faces south. The city was also located on um, important long-distance trading routes. Yeah. I mean, that's really, if you look at the two things that um, account for its growth, one we just discussed, Hohenzollerns, the second then is being on this junction of, of the trading routes between um, the Hanseatic ports down into the center of Germany. So the rich... In the Middle Ages, you know, the core, the, the the rich areas of Germany, if you like, were the rich farming lands down in uh, in 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 Saxony around Dresden. I mean, Saxony was always the um, the sort of the rich kid on the block. Berlin, Brandenburg was always the poor kid, and those routes down down the Elbe and then um, up up the Havel. And of course, you know, actually Berlin is very near the junction of the Spree and the Havel. Well, it's on them, Spree and the Havel. Um, but then also the eastern routes, the routes coming in. Um, Again, for, for, from the Elbe, along, along the Harvard, then east into Poland. But it's not just that. because The thing which really, you know, that's happened, lots of cities have been in that position. But how does Berlin make a go that? How does Berlin turn that into something? Uh, it does it because it has this extraordinarily dynamic, commercially-minded population. And one of the factors that I think dominates Berlin's history, to my mind, is the fact it's always been much more than any other European city or major city, a, a city of immigrants. And they've always been very good uh, in Berlin at you know, ad adapting people. And I don't know what that is, but it's it's been like that since the Middle Ages. So, you know, you could set up in Berlin as a merchant, wherever you came from. Christoph Stürzel, who might, who might know, who's a quite well-known German commentator, uh, said to me, the typical Berliner is somebody who's just arrived at the railway station. Now, obviously, it wasn't a railway station in the Middle Ages, but you know, it was the same idea. And commercially, they got their own mint, which was uh, which was hugely important. They set up their own city government very quickly, but they also demanded that all goods passing through Berlin were offloaded and retraded in Berlin's markets. So, you know, that's commercially pretty uh, uh, pretty advanced. So these two twin fishing villages, which had a bit of fish, good place for wolfing boats, um, you know, on the junction of these trade routes, have attracted this population that is commercially astute. And you know, the Hohenzollerns, when they first arrived, actually had their they, they were, didn't think of putting their capital in Berlin. They could they might have put it in Spandau, they might have put it in anywhere else. But actually, they're attracted by this um, commercially successful, well-off city. So that, that those two factors then play together, and what you get with this with this immigrant population, um, this is often in direct contention with the Hohenzollerns, but you do then get this extraordinarily liberal attitude amongst Berlin's population. Now it doesn't always happen. There's huge exceptions. There's Jewish pogroms in Berlin, like there are in Alsace in every other European city, but on the whole, Berlin is a much more tolerant, liberal place to live. And although it takes a long time actually to get a university to get, um, like the trappings that go with other European cities, what you do get is this very diverse population who is sort of quite happy doing their, their own thing. Yeah, to give a sense of how just how diverse this place was, you mentioned among the settlers: Burgundians, Huns, Wends, yeah. Dutch, Flemish, mm. uh, Poles, Jews, Huguenots, French, yeah. Austrians, Silesians, Russians, and anyone who comes here today will will see the very large and vibrant Turkish and Vietnamese populations. Even my German friends pretty much all come from someplace else. I can only think yeah. of one one guy who was born here and grew up here. 
It's funny, when I was writing the book, I was trying to find old Berlin families who'd always been there. There are a few around. I talked to them and interviewed them for the book. But, but these it's always been like that. And the, the Wends, actually, the, 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 the Wendish bit is fascinating because Wendish, Palabian, was actually still spoken around Berlin and still spoken in Brandenburg right up until the beginning of the last century. But you know, um, the Nazis weren't having any nasty Slavic languages like that. So sadly, they got rid of a lot of the Palabian communities. But the Wendish um, influence was very, was very strong. And the other thing that's interesting about it is, is how it sort of, I think, has shaped Germany as a whole since, in that there are still people like Adenauer who felt that the borders of Germany were on the Elbe. And Adenauer always used to say when he crossed the Elbe, he had to draw down the blinds on his railway carriage because he thought he was going into Asia. And he hated Berlin. But there is still that sort of feeling of comfortable Roman-dominated Rhineland Germany, Germany of a comfortable um, sort of bourgeois states of the 19th century, versus this sort of um, wild, militaristic you know, Brandenburg, Prussia, Pomerania, which lies beyond the Elbe, lies off towards the forests and the swamps of the east. And that is still, it's a completely false idea, as we know. It's an idea that still still prevails a bit. It's only quite recently that, um, which is part of the reason, you know, you know better than I do, the price of housing thing up so much in Berlin. You know, the trendy thing for Germans to do now is to have a second home in Berlin, like eventually in Paris, Britain, and London. That never used to be the case. You know, you didn't do that. You might have come work for the government there. But the, the, that idea of having a second Berlin home and regarding Berlin, you know, as the sort of place you wanted to have a second home, that's that's very recent. What's very interesting too, the um, with all these waves of immigrants from so many different places, as you've said, they they somehow took on this distinctive Berlin character. Like the character of yeah. Berlin has always molded people, people who come yeah. here. Could you just could you describe that a bit? You've called it the antithesis of the Prussian military cult. Well, I think it is. I mean, it's a sort of it's a curious combination, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you know, Berlin is a quite sharp. Um, you know, Berlin is a very direct. Even the taxi drivers, although the taxi drivers now tend not to be German anymore, which they, you know, they used to have that sort of particular sort of taxi driver patois that are like the, you know, the Cockneys do in, in in London. And it is. It can be an unsympathetic city. You know, it can be a sharp city and part of a sort of the a byproduct, if you like, of being very relaxed and not really minding what anybody else does. Is it does make it can make you quite insular. And, and the other thing is, so they're also quite law-abiding. I mean, as in all German cities are. I mean, we all know the famous story about right? people not crossing um, the way when the Ampelmann is red. And the great joke was actually even the wild pigs in the Grunewald now went across the red, when the, which I I don't know if it's true, but it's a great story. Um, and then, on the other hand, you've actually, Berlin's always been pretty left-leaning. It's always been quite rebellious and very jealous of its rights and privileges. And actually, it rebelled five times. There's been five rebellions in Berlin. Um, the only successful one, fun enough, was 1989, which was the only peaceful one. But the um, there has been also this resistance to authority. And I mean, let's take one particular example of that. Let's take the time when the German Empire is formed under Bismarck from the 1870s onwards. Um, between 1870 and 1914, Berlin becomes increasingly socialist. You know, it is it is almost it is a socialist city, effectively, which is you know something which I think would surprise people if they knew that. And the Hohenzollerns didn't really like living there; they did always feel slightly threatened there, which is why they lived out in places like Potsdam, or they you know, lived at Oranienbaum. They lived. I mean, the, the great idea was to move out of Berlin, um, and the city is ringed by these lovely 
chateaus and schlosses and castles that they they build. Um, so there's always been that tension there. Um, and, of course, it translates through to the Nazis. And you know, one of the things which is always appealing about Berlin is it's one of the most anti-Nazi cities in, in, in Germany. Hitler never likes it. He never forgives them for not voting for him in 1933. Um, he puts Goebbels in as the um, as the guy Goebbels hates it too. Um, and the great set-piece Nazi rallies, which originally were going to be in Berlin, Hitler says, no, they've got to go to Nuremberg. You know, we can't have them in this city. It's not a pure German city, which, of course, it wasn't. Uh, it's exactly the opposite. And he and Speer came up with this idea of Germania. They were going to flatten the center of Berlin and build this massive sort of avenue from Tempelhof up somewhere beyond the Brandenburg Gate, where there was going to be a great hall of the people. Thank God they never did. And they were going to make it, as he said, a capital fit for the Thousand-Year Reich. Well, um, the Thousand-Year Reich, as we know, lasts about 11 years. So it's there are a few remnants of this period. Yeah, absolutely. From, did you see that the load-bearing pillar? Which it's uh, it's a pillar, a giant pillar that Speer built to uh, test the weight of where the triumphal arch would have been. So it's it's down yeah, just yeah. down from uh, Platz der Luftbrücke. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. Sorry, you no, know, I, I, um, I, I have, and I mean, of course, I mean, it always amazed me actually how much Genarte, if you like, building is left. So, in obviously, the Olympic Stadium, which is a classic, which actually. If you forget the facts built by the Nazis, is a pretty impressive building. And the I don't know what it's used for now, but the building in on the junction of Leipziger and Wilhelmstrasse, which was the old air ministry. Yeah, yeah, it's the finance ministry now, I think. Is it? Yeah, I think it is, exactly. It's the one which has got that mural outside, you know, of the, yeah, yeah. Of, of the 1953 mural. Um, and that's, you know, classic Nazi building. Um and then that extraordinary Langemark Halle down at um, uh, and the Olympic Stadium, which is, I think it's very difficult to see. I don't think it's open to the public, actually. No, it's not. Yeah. No. Um, it is. Um, one of the great things, I think, about Berlin, um, a man who helped me a lot with this book is a great friend of mine, Neil McGregor, who was used to run the British Museum and then was over. Um, he he was a key part of the, of the Humboldt Forum project. Neil, when I was writing it, and he helped me a lot with it, said, you know, one of the things that always attracts him to Berlin is Berlin is completely open about dealing with its past. Mm. So whereas a lot of European cities and they have rebuilt themselves after they've been destroyed in various wars, as they sort of think they should have been. I mean, Warsaw's been like that. Um, actually, Berlin hasn't done that. Berlin's completely open. It sort of it accepts its past warts and all and lives with it. Um, and actually, the Humboldt Forum, which I think I know people don't like the Humboldt Forum. I actually personally think it's a really successful idea. And I think it's united the center of a city in quite an inspiring way. And, and that sort of acceptance of the Nazi buildings, you just get on and live with them. You know, there was still an awful lot of war damage out in the East, which you know, people are in no great hurry to clear up. And then how many cities would actually put something like the Holocaust Memorial right in their center? Not many, I put it to you. I mean, and I'm not even certain how many other German cities would have done that. But Berlin has is a complete history. Again, that's why it's such, it such a fascinating place. Not, it doesn't try to hide its past. And I think that's really important. Yeah, you said it's always been a city of tensions, of geographical yeah. tension, religious tension, political tension, um, artistic tension. So yeah. we've talked about some of those things already, but how has religion shaped the city? A city today that many would think is, you know, very hedonistic and free spirited and wouldn't be associated with religion at all. Yeah, it's such a it's such a good question. So originally, you you it, it's the 
the, the obviously the Catholic versus the um, re- Reformed religions, uh, uh, the Lutheran religion. Uh, but that's a tension you could argue applies in a lot of North German states. What actually happens um, more in Brandenburg in Berlin is that you get a ruling family who are Calvinist and you get a population who are Lutheran. And it is that tension um, which is really interesting. It, it, and it doesn't really it, it sort of solve itself until in the 18th century you get the partism and partism is effectively i mean in layman's language it's a sort of melding of the ideas of both lutheranism and calvinism i.e individuals approach direct to god without going through um, a church hierarchy while at the same time retaining you know the services and the um if you like what, 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 what people would loosely call the paraphernalia of religion um but that tension is Israeli tensions. There was never actually a huge tension between sort of Catholic and, and 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 Protestant, if you like. There is a bit, um, but it's much more the Hohenzollerns rising, like a lot of rulers did. That actually, if you're ruling despotically, um, yeah, as an absolute monarch, Calvinism is quite attractive because you know people can commune straight to God. You didn't need this whole hierarchy of bishops and that who tell the ruler what to do. And you didn't need to have a cathedral. So Berlin doesn't have a cathedral right until, you know, the Kaiser William II builds the existing cathedral right at the end of the 19th century because there's you know, nobody to go in it, you see what I mean? Um, that, 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 that tension is very nearly, it nearly causes rebellion in 1618. I mean, and actually, I think we hadn't been for the outbreak for the 30 years' war. It would have been a lot more religious tension. And again, we hadn't been for the, you know, the, the, the great elector. One of those much neglected um, men in German history, where when he takes power after the Thirty Years' War, actually is sort of driving the thing forward so fast that almost people don't have sort of time to think about the religious aspects, and then partism comes in. But it is for a long time, for almost a century, it, it's a cause of considerable d- disquiet and one of the main sources of contention between Berliners and the and the electors. Let's talk about those two things. The Thirty Years' War and the Great Elector. You said that yeah. uh, Berlin has been crucified twice in its life: uh, first by the Thirty Years' War, then by combined Second World War bombing and the Soviet invasion of forty-five. Yeah. So, what did the Thirty Years' War do to Berlin? Um, effectively, reduced it to to a, a, a village again. I mean, the destruction was unbelievable. So, uh, it, Berlin actually got spared for the Thirty Years' War. Thirty years. First 10 years, it's actually pretty well spared. The fighting is mostly in southern Germany, Bohemia, um, in the Palatinate. Um, but actually, for me, towards the end of the 1620s until 1640, those 20 years are just a living hell in Brandenburg. Um, and by the end of it, by, by by the time you get to the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, you know, Berlin's down to about a population, I can't make exact figure, it's in the world, it's about 5,000 with 2,000 houses. So it has completely destroyed um, the city. But it's deeper than that because you pick up this sort of feeling of fury and deep grief in Berlin that you know people have worked really hard. They've been building the city up. It had become a really nice place to live. It had a good standard of living. It had a thriving economy. And then suddenly you know, all this is lost for in this senseless fighting, which has no real discernible outcome um as far as the people are concerned it does as obviously as far as um as the dynasties are concerned and i think that actually applies 
to Germany as a whole. So it's quite interesting you know, how much Thirty Years War still recurs in German literature and German thinking today. And not just today, Schiller, you know, actually writes about Thirty Years' War before he writes about anything else. It's almost as if he has to do it to sort of get it off his conscience before he can write properly. You get plays like Mother Courage. I mean, Mother Courage is a subtler in the Thirty Years' War. You know, it is I think it's gave Germany a sense of victimhood, I don't think, but Frederick the Great probably knew more about it than I did. He he absolutely believed it. He said that actually we still Frederick the Great was writing obviously a century after it, um, even longer. Um, and he said, we still haven't got over this war. And he said, Germany will take a very long time to recover. And this idea that, you know, hardworking, decent people um, uh, uh, who's built up this really this flourishing sort of land, because it's not a country, obviously, of city-states, have, have just had it all destroyed for them and desecrated for these purposes armies. And it's interesting how, you know, there's a slight anti-militaristic feeling in Germany today, I mean, it's nothing compared to what it was in the 17th century um, and the fuss the great elector had in trying to get a German army together. And it's not for 100 years again that actually um, his grandson, Frederick William I, creates you know, the German army that Frederick the Great will then use to create Prussia. So I do think it is a hugely um, important area. And the trouble is that we're quite forgetful of history in Europe. You know, we we do tend to concentrate very much on but the 19th well, 20th century. Um, and we do slightly forget that, you know, without stating the obvious, the 20th century came after the 19th and the 18th, if it should have been. I mean, these influences uh, are, are very much there. And part of the reason I, when I read the, when I started writing the book, you know, several Berliners said to me, for God's sake, please don't write another book about the Second World War or the Nazis or the Cold War. You know, actually, our history did start before then. And they said, you cannot understand German history. Yeah, unless you look back and you look at these things like the Thirty Years' War, you look at the French invasion, you look, you know, why does Versailles, um, why does the Treaty of Versailles happen? Why does why does the um um well, why does the Kaiser declare the German Empire in, in, in Paris or the, the, the king then? Um and yeah, that that king is a small boy who's held his mother's hand at Tilsit while Napoleon and the Tsar have carved up his father's uh, kingdom of Prussia and the humiliation and the bitterness that created, and it leads to this extraordinary German-French tension. It's only recently one of the things that actually the European project has done is beginning to reduce that, which is fantastic. But it, you don't understand that unless you actually think of what Germany had been through before. Well, I guess it's easy to overlook this these sorts of periods because they're so complicated and they're so difficult to wrap your head around. I mean, so tell me about the great elector. What what did that mean, first of all? What what was an elector, and how did this fit? Well, the great name, So basically, he inherits the throne of Prussia. Um, sorry, that's inaccurate. He inherit, he becomes the elector of Prussia in um, uh, in, uh, at the end of the Thirty Years' War, in the sixteen forties. Um, he effectively moves from Königsberg to Berlin. He doesn't actually officially move the capital, um, but his son will do that. But what he is, is one of these really dynamic rulers. If you look at the Hohenzollerns, you know, people tend to judge them by Kaiser Wilhelm II, yeah, who is a disaster area. Actually, you look at the previous Hohenzollerns, most of them are thoroughly capable, energetic rulers. The great elector is probably the, the, the strongest. And so he does two things. Not only does he create Prussia, um, really, as a kingdom, um, and it's his, I won't bore you with the dynastic um, details, but it's through his family that 
um, he has inherited um, Ulick Cleves um, the, the, and those areas. So he's not only uniting Prussia and creating that as a kingdom. He's making, he's rebuilding Berlin, uh, um, and he 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 he's building Berlin as the capital of Brandenburg and what will then become the capital of Prussia. At this time, what what we would think of as Germany today is is just a, a, a bunch of small kingdoms or. Yeah, not not that small. All of them. I mean, Prussia is under the Great Elector. Prussia becomes having been a you know. So say we go from being the the mark of Brandenburg um, to Prussia, um, and that is something that happens largely under the on the Great Elector's watch, if you like. So, what's the role of an elector? He is uh, he's there to elect the Holy Roman Emperor. When the Hohenzollerns um, bought Brandenburg. From the Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund, they bought with it one of the electoral seats. So there were seven electors who used to elect the Holy Roman Emperor. Emperor. Um, and there were endless spats always as to who they were going to vote for. Lo and behold, it, they, it always ended up being a Habsburg. So although it was technically elected, um, you know, all the Holy Roman Emperors were Habsburg. So it just became a slight sort of anomaly. Um, but there were three clerical and four, um, four temporal. And but it was a, a title. It was a great, a great position to have. So the rulers, the Hohenzollern rulers of Brandenburg, were known as the electors of Brandenburg. So he is called the Great Elector, and then it's his son Frederick the First, who becomes the first king. Um, and again, through some rather tiresome detail of dynastic precedence, he's king in Prussia rather than all Prussia. But we bother with that. But um, it is the Great Elector who rally and his two wives. Um, who really give Berlin the start? Give Berlin the feeling the city has today. It's under them that the Unter den Linden is laid out. That you get Friedrichstrasse, you get Wilhelmstrasse. Um, his second wife was a bit of a property speculator, and all that area north of the Unter den Linden up to the river, uh, the, 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 that is all developed by her, and she makes a tidy profit out of it. Um, and he may also fortify Berlin because even though the Thirty Years' War is finished. Berlin's never going to go through this again. So it was a huge project to build um, rampart-style defences around Berlin. And again, you can see them. So you often wonder why the, the S-Bahn from the Hackersham Art takes a bit of a funny bend. Well, it does it because it was following the line of the old ravelin, the old rampart uh, that the Red Nectar put up. And those are actually, those are only, only rarely finally come down in, in the 19th century. You can still see evidence of them today all over the centre of the city. So he's defended it, but his other great contribution is, you know, he sees the value in Berlin's immigrant population. He invites the Jews who are being persecuted by the Habsburgs in Vienna to move to Berlin. You get a, a very strong increase in the Jewish population. Uh, and although there will, again, sadly be Jewish pogroms after him, they're, they're few and far between then. Um, but then he's most famous for bringing the Huguenots, the French um, Calvinists, mostly um, from France, who were persecuted by Louis the Fourteenth when he revokes the Edict of Nantes. So basically, they are told that their religious practice is no longer legal in France, and their property is confiscated. Um, the Great Elector sets up an embassy in Paris. Literally, it's, it's like modern refugees from you know, from Syria, or Afghanistan, somewhere. You know, they are welcomed into Prussia. They're welcomed in Berlin. And by the time he dies, population of Berlin is twenty five percent French. So, I mean, this is significant. Uh, so he's actively encouraging, you know, this sort of Berlin, this multicultural, multi-ethnic Berlin. Um, 
in a way that doesn't go down particularly well with some of the native Berliners or the or the Prussian the Prussian landowners. But it's hugely successful, and you know you don't need me to tell you how French influence is in Berlin today, or how you know if you wander around Berlin, you see an awful lot of French-sounding surnames. What is, was this because um, they brought new skills and new trades to the city? Yeah. So exactly that. I mean, you're rebuilding a city that's been destroyed in the Thirty Years' War. You need the people. You need the skills. Exactly. Sorry, I should have said that. Yeah. Yeah. They are they are trilled, skilled craftsmen and artisans. They're they're bankers. They're metal workers. They're smiths, they're, they're, they're um, porcelain makers, um, yeah, they're, 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 they're cloth workers. Um, and yeah, they're these of the trades of the time. Obviously, we're, uh, yeah, we're a century short of an industrial revolution yet. Um, but, so these, but these are the really important artisan trades um, that will allow Berlin to rebuild. Um, I mean, to me, he's, he's, I think he's one of the great European rulers of all time. Um, the great he's, a, he's, a, he's an interesting man. He's robust, he's humorous. Um, he's a successful military commander. Uh, he doesn't get on with his son, but then none of the Hohenzollerns ever did. I mean, I guess that's par for the course. Then his son is Frederick I, who becomes the king, and people, again, are very critical of, but he is the man to whom um, we owe the the, the, the Berlin Schloss and actually the Schluter facades of the Humboldt Forum, and, his, and we owe Charlottenburg, which was built for his wife, Sophie Charlotte, um, and we owe an awful lot of the sort of beginning of the artistic renaissance that will come once the great elector has got the commercial renaissance going. So you say that um, it was Frederick the Great that actively encouraged the development of the arts and sciences and is widely credited with um, kind of the yeah. cultural renaissance of Berlin at that time. Yeah. So what, what stamp did he put on the city? It's, it's so interesting. So you have... You know, for Frederick William I, too, so you have a great elector, his son Frederick I comes king. His son is Frederick William I, who is always portrayed in German history as being a bit of a sort of martinet and a military good for nothing. Actually, he's a, a canny and very successful ruler in a slightly idiosyncratic way. He builds up the army, which then Frederick the Great uses to take side easier to defeat the Habsburgs to create you know, the Greater Prussia that, um, that will become Germany. Um, Frederick the Great is is an anomaly because he is very influenced by the prevailing French fashions um, that are dominant in, in in 18th century Europe. So he thinks the height of sophistication um, is is the French language. Um, it the famous exchanges with Voltaire. He builds up the opera. Uh, he loves French music, French literature. He hardly bothers to speak German. Um, he thinks German is a barbaric language, which doesn't have the correct expressions. Uh, and he lives at Potsdam at Sanssouci, which you will know, glorious, um, glorious sort of pavilion, if you like, um, with its wonderful gardens and views. Um, but he's isolated increasingly from the real Germany. Yes, he's, when he's fighting his wars, he's very obviously in the thick of it, and he is creating a country which is an autocracy. I mean, he may have been an enlightened, enlightened man, but he was an autocrat. He was a despot. But increasingly, while he is at Potsdam, it's also see developing his sort of French court. Berlin is saying, "Well, hold on, we're German. Um, this is a German city," um, and running in parallel with Frederick's cultural, well, it's not really Renaissance, but his his, his cultural. Um, sort of thoughts, his cultural feelings, if you like, you have this development of beginning of the very early stages of the German Enlightenment. 
as you get to the end of the 18th century, after Frederick the Great finally dies, and as the Germans said, he takes a long time about it, um, you actually have the beginning of this incredible period in Berlin, which will be dominated by the French occupation. But that is the area that is producing you know, the great writers. It, it's, it's, it, it's producing the Nicolais and the Lessings. It's producing the Schinkels. It's producing the Humboldt brothers. Um, it, it's producing a, a very German way of looking at things. And I always think quite a nice contrast in styles is if you look at Sans Souci, which is effectively a French sort of Rococo um, over-the-top pavilion, compare it to the Humboldt Schloss Tegel, which is AK built, admittedly, a bit later, not a huge amount later, um, and look at the difference in styles. Schloss Tegel is, is German. It is a German building. It is disciplined, solid, square, attractive, ordered, um, clear, clean. Sans Souci is sort of over-the-top, flowery, rambustious, bursting out all over, if you see what I mean. Um, and these are very reflective of the two movements that are going on. So why that's so important is that Berlin Aufklärung, as they call it. I mean, Aufklärung you know, means lots of things to different people in German, but basically it means sort of the artistic um, experimentation. Um, it is actually what comes to be the core of what drives Germany and German nationalism. And that is heightened by the defeat of Napoleon, by clearing the French out of, of, of a German state. And eventually those are the movements that will lead to Frankfurt, will lead to the creation of, of, of Germany. Um, so it is an extraordinarily important um, period, I think, to understand um, and, and to be clear about that. So Frederick the Great is a great king. He's a great commander. He's a great Prussian. I mean, again, hugely important in the history of Europe. But actually, in the history of Germany, um, it's actually probably what's going on in Berlin that is more long-lasting. What impact did Napoleon leave on Berlin? Well, pretty negative. Um, I mean, the French occupation was quite unpleasant. It wasn't necessarily totally brutal. It was brutal in places. I think it was a sort of casual arrogance of Napoleon that... Um, and his troops that got people. Um, I, I mean, as you probably know, a lot of Germans were so fed up, they left, came to, to England, formed the King's German Legion to fight against Napoleon. The occupation of Berlin was, it, it was so, so dismissive, really, of everything German. It was basically, if you like, sort of going back to that Frederick the Great idea that French is good, German is, is insignificant. The, the fact that he actually carved Prussia up. So, I mean, he leaves Prussia about half, I can't make exact figures, of a population of, of, of what it was. And then you have this awful moment at Tilsit when he meets the Tsar on the raft on the River Neiman. And the um, that is when young Willem I is there with his mother holding her hand while his father is excluded from the talks between the Tsar and Napoleon, which are going to carve Prussia up. Uh, it is like so much Napoleonic, um, you know, it's incredibly ill thought out. It's so temporary. And that's what's extraordinary about Napoleon, isn't it? Actually, for a man of ambition, he was incapable of putting in place sort of structures that people could live with in the long term. They were always going to they have to fight against them because they were unsustainable, because um, they were so, so crushing. I think that's really his biggest impact. There's not much physical impact to the French occupation um, in Berlin. It, it was it was mostly this sort of sense of deep humiliation of you know we are 
as good a country as you are. And again, I think maybe his greatest legacy, ironically, is the enormous sort of um, energy he gave to the German Enlightenment. He gave to this idea that Germany, for the Germans, why should we speak? Why do we want to speak French? You know, we'll speak German. I mean, the Iron Cross is designed for people who, the first Iron Cross is rewarded um, to, to people who resisted the Napoleonic invasion. And that, you know, why Iron and the Iron Cross have become such an incredibly important German symbol. You know, people say ignorantly sort of think it's, an, it's a, a Nazi thing. Of course, it isn't. It's deeply, deep, deep into the German psyche, designed by Schinkel again. And there's another person who left such a profound legacy in Berlin, Schinkel. What an incredible, multi-talented man. Extraordinary man. Man to down demand. I mean, and the, the, him and the Humboldts and that whole that whole generation. But Schinkel is amazing in that quite how diverse his talents were. I mean, he started designing theater sets, designed furniture, painted, but he is rarely as, as an architect. Um, and I, I think why he's so important to Berlin is of course that whole sort of feel of Berlin to me is Schinkel. Yes, yeah. Uh, you know, that but sort of the idea of the uh, of, of the um the meat caserna, which I um, mean, not necessarily the meat caserna is, is him, but the you know the frontages of, um, of them, and that idea of of getting a feel of a street, um, and I mean, I think it's so extraordinary is how diverse he was. So you know, he's perfectly capable of building the you know, the red brick Gothic church uh, opposite the Humboldt Forum. It's in, at the moment it's all wrapped up in and still got you know, some false facades up, but he can he can build and experiment in all sorts of different. Um, styles as, as, as well as art forms. But I think what's really important about Schinkel is he gives definition to this, you know, he's the artistic definition of Germanness, if you like. Of course, he doesn't do the Brandenburg Gate, as you know, people often think he, he does. He's after that. But, but I mean, he very much easily could have done it, you see what I mean? Yeah, you mentioned the the meat caserna. Um, so yeah. at, at the end of the, by the end of the Napoleonic Wars, Berlin is um, the fastest growing city in Europe, and it, it would become the largest uh, capital in Europe by area. Uh, but also the most sparsely populated, but sparsely populated in terms of it's very spread out and there are a lot of green spaces and forests, but it seems like there was always a housing crisis. And yeah, there was. I mean, and it's, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, those two things, again, which may seemingly contradictory, are that you know, actually, as I mean, as a metropolitan area, it's one of the least sparsely, least densely populated in Europe. Um, and having things like the Tiergarten and the Grunewald are, you know, enormous advantages for city. But of course, where the poor could afford to live um, in the centre, uh, the housing conditions in the 19th century were terrible. Um, and the meat caserna idea um, is an unsatisfactory answer to housing conditions. But what is really interesting about the meat caserna, um, which I think people largely overlook, is that people from totally different income brackets lived in the same building, just in bits of it. So you could have the the you know the rich living in the smart apartments looking out on the street at the front and the poor living in sort of grotty attic rooms at the back. And people are trying to defend the system would argue that that was socially cohesive because you had the children from the smart families and the children from the poor families all playing together and going to school together. It actually didn't work like that. But um, and there were, of course, again, um, although there were obviously sort of poor families in the center of Berlin, actually the poor families tended to be pushed out onto the onto uh, the periphery, not out in the Grunewald, but in the in, in like, the Kreuzbergs and the Schönebergs, the Weddings, um, whereas actually in Mitte, 
and um, uh, and Charles Ottenberg um, uh, and, and and the centre areas. You, you obviously had the, the richer families, um, but they're extraordinarily phenomenal mixture because I mean they're and they're they're, they're, they're now. I mean they you know they're, they're pretty solid most of them. I mean the two building types that define Berlin for me are the the DDR tower block, you know, blocks of apartment blocks, um, which you probably know well from quotes, um, and um, the and 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 the Mikasana. Um, I mean, they, however much they were bombed or shot at by the Russians, most of them have survived intact, you know, been rebuilt. They were solid buildings. But I think the, again, people forget the, um, just how bad the conditions were. Bad conditions were bad in most European industrial cities in, in the 19th century. But I think they were, Berlin was particularly bad because it grew faster and bigger. And in a pretty uncontrolled way, uh, and um, if, you, if, if you look at what causes the trouble for 1848, the revolution 1848, um, although that is in many ways, for enough, a bourgeois revolution, it's a bourgeois revolution fueled by the by the overall um, conditions. The DDR would tell you, of course, it was entirely a proletarian revolution. It wasn't. That's not true. But it was certainly fueled by it. Um, and you've probably seen the cartoons. I just um, I put one in, I put one in the book. Um, but if you um, with the brigade Zilla cartoons, I think I put one in here. There's actually a Zilla museum, Nikolai Fiatil, and at the moment, which is is worth seeing. But Zilla, we like sort of captured that he 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 lived in one of these Mikasana uh, when his family came as refugees, um, and um, described you know the absolute horror of it. Is it is it also um... Where that strong sense of locality comes from in Berlin, that sort of identity with your particular Keats. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, and you part you you must notice that living there. I mean, it is very much a city. I think that's also partly because the city expanded. It took in um, villages and village sort of communities, and people made a lot of money out of speculation. You know, there are bits of Berlin, as you know, where you can still sort of wander into the outskirts and find a parish church and a village green, as it were. Literally, rather, but I, I think it's 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 partly that, and it, it's it's partly that the 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 idea of everybody living um living together concept, yeah, which I totally accept. But I mean, to a certain extent, I do. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very much a city of neighborhoods. It's always felt that yeah. way. Um, that was one of the other things that surprised me from your book that it's kind of from early on the northern and eastern districts. Tended to be working class districts, places like Wedding and Gesundbrunnen, yeah. yeah. whereas the West, um, like Schöneberg, Charlottenburg, Ulmersdorf, it was it was always middle. Like I always thought that was a result of the wall years. Not I didn't realize it went so far back. Yeah, yeah, yeah it goes back a long way. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, that the um, uh, of course the wall in good German um, orderly fashion, law abiding fashion. The wall followed exactly the boundary between the the, the, the different areas of a city. It was not, you know, because that's where the f- people ended up. But of course, they didn't. It was all under Russian occupation to start with. It was actually because, um, and originally there was no French sector. It was just British, American, and, and Russian. But it follows exactly where the 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 the, the, the boundaries, the district boundaries, ran. Mm. I didn't realize it was the other way around. I always thought the wall caused that. Yeah, ah, it's interesting. No, no, absolutely no. It was, um, it, it was. I mean, that all goes back to the the, the great mayor in the nineteen twenties, um, who who reorganized the metropolitan structure of Berlin, 
um, and, and 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 laid out the district boundaries. And he, I joke in the book that he he he's the man who actually set the boundaries of the free world. Um, I'm knowing him in the 1920s. I can't remember his name. I'm looking up, but it's um. But yeah, no, it 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 it, it is that. And actually, fun of it's when you look at the, the, the Soviet sector, um, uh, it actually was. It didn't the the nice well. It had the middle. I mean, it had the internet and it had the the palace. It had the um had the island. So it made had all the sort of government center. But I guess the the sort of richer, nicer bits to live were all in the were all in the west. So Berlin's time as a cultural and uh, intellectual center seemed to peak in the Weimar period. That's my favorite period of, and I think for many people really relate to this period in in Berlin is this great um, cultural renaissance. Tell me about that. Like what was happening in the city at that time? Yeah, you see, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I would put it to you that the 1920s was probably the most miserable time in Berlin's history. So it was fine if um, you were a visitor. It's fine if you were in um, the sort of elite. But for most Berliners, it was a time of pretty abject misery because, um, well, for a start, you probably have lost somebody, a family member in the First World War. Um, after the First World War, we have um, chronic un- 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 unemployment. We have a real shortage of food. We have street violence. We have hyperinflation. Um, we have a government having to move out of Berlin because Berlin is effectively ungovernable, so it moves to Weimar. Um, it moves back from Weimar, there's more um writing, more trouble. Um, you then have a great crash, the depression. Uh, then you have a street fighting between the socialists and the Nazis. Um, and you have this inexorable rise of the Nazis, so well described by men like Isherwood, um, until the nineteen thirty-three elections. Arguably from nineteen thirty-three on, um Berlin actually does have six years of more well, actually rather longer. It's the beginning of the war. It's fairly untouched, you know, um, quite a good period. But I think the 1920s are miserable. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it is, it, it, it's, it's a great time in many ways artistically, but it's shallow, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't actually, it's almost a sort of a, um, a, a sort of reaction of sort of gay abandon. I mean, I guess you get a bit of the same in other European cities. You get in Paris. It's a bit of a reaction from the first world. It's a bit of, the sort of gaiety after the after the the horrors. Um, but there are some some elements that last. Like you have um, the German expressionist painters, the like De Brucke, and these and these uh, experimentalists, and the um, the great expressionist filmmakers. So we have like the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and uh, Metropolis, and the, that's the part that interests me. That on the one hand is so miserable and uh, so violent, and this end of the world kind of feeling of you know Europe on the brink again of complete yeah. and utter destruction. Seems to spark some of these uh, these types of artists. That's what interests me. Many of who then have to go abroad in 1933, uh, or in soon after, because they realise what's happening. Which, hence, my point is actually quite. Yeah, you know, but yeah, I mean, it, it is. I mean, I wouldn't. I mean, it it's always sort of said to be summed up by that sort of cabaret. It um, you know, just redone cabaret incredibly well in London, actually, wasn't it? Um, uh, but but that sort of revolution idea. But yeah, there is, and there is in literature too. I, I don't think it's a deeply popular culture. I think it's uh I think it skates over the surface, I'm afraid. I absolutely get your your point. I mean, some very talented um artists and writers and that are um are, are, are working. But I think they're 
it, it's it, it's a culture of of sort of challenge, which I doesn't rarely have the the deep roots. Fun enough, I think the almost deeper rooting, deeper rooted Berlin culture comes in the eighteen nineties and nineteen tens with men like um, Uri and Lieberman um, uh, and people like that, where you get this. In much more sort of honest, proper expression, incredibly popular works, which are still in you know, a hugely popular now, fairly obviously. But yeah, I mean, I was talking to some some people the other day from the by this, and they said, you know, if you were born in Berlin in say eighteen ninety, um, your life has been pretty wet was pretty wretched, really, wasn't it? As you had the First World War, you have nineteen twenties, you have the Second World War, you then had the wall and the split and by the time you you know you may just have made it through to 1989 but you wouldn't have had much time to enjoy it so i re- i i regard the 20th century as as a pretty dark period for berlin to be honest i don't knock what you're saying i totally get your you know, some very talented people and you know, some of the great great authors we know um you know we're 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 we're, 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 we're writing them but i don't think it's I'm not certain how deep it goes into into Germany. It seemed to have my, uh, quite a large influence abroad, perhaps because they had to flee. Like, well, they, they exactly. I mean, a large number to America, those who ordered them, those who could actually, yes, um, they find somebody to take them. It wasn't that easy. So it was a you were, um, but to, okay, okay. Look, so let me give you another artist who maybe sums up better for me, Katja Kolwitz in the you know that Pieto in the image which is now the national memorial in the um in, in the guardhouse um on, on the interdentin yeah that in a way says more to me how art says more to me about the 1920s than than others um loss the sense of loss of the national loss the sense of, of of grieving um it goes back to about 30 years war idea too so would you say it was um the assassination of Walter Rathenau that sort of marked the end of this period. That's there's no turning back now. Like this, this the Weimar era is doomed. Um, I don't know that it was particularly that. I think it was. I think Weimar was rarely doomed because because of the economics. Assassination of, of Rathenau was a, uh, if you like, was one of several murders that have been carried out by these squads. Uh, but I, I don't think it's necessarily that. Um, you know, sort of turning point in itself. I think it was symptomatic rather than of you know the general sort of lawlessness of culture. That slightly actually proves my point of what I mean about you know how this is a slightly false culture because it's well, it's not false culture. That's the wrong word, but it's um, it, 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 it's actually a culture that isn't it, it isn't reflecting what's sort of going on in in, in the society um, um, underneath. It's sort of a bit like the sort of Dada idea, isn't it? But but yeah no I I think what really does for Weimar is um, after the inflation you 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 you've had recession and um, I mean the rise of the Nazis is horribly explicable I mean it's logical it was the recession that tipped the balance that's that uh, saw them take power I think what really brings the Nazis to power is economic despair really it's the idea that. Um, the 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 people would have put up with Versailles, put up with you know like national humiliation if they'd had savings and jobs and um you know even food and housing. But I think the degree of again, as I say in the book, you know, I think that degree of misery created um first by the inflation, um and then by the recession was that extraordinary story. 
um, in the um, in the Bielenberg book um, about her gardener uh, saying to her um, that um, talking to Frau Bielenberg about uh, about his uh, his aspiration to get married, saying that he'd saved up money uh, to, to get married, he'd just about got enough, he'd strived all his life, um, he was just about to propose, um, his savings suddenly became worthless. And all he was able to do was to buy his wife, his intended fiance, a cup and saucer, and they had to scrap their chance because they couldn't afford it. I mean, that'd be like it's that desperation that, to me, is what does the does the damage. You know, there's nothing. There's nothing in there. Really. We've been. It was a system that's completely failed us, if you like, or we failed ourselves. I mean, systems have failed us. You always got to say, well, you're part of a system, but you know, actually, Germany has failed itself in that respect. So you said earlier that um, support for the Nazi party in Berlin was far lower than the rest of the country. Yeah. One of the things that surprised me as well from your book is um, at the same time, much of the warped ideology of the Nazis was based on ideas and movements that originated in Berlin. So you cite the Prussian militarism, um, the nationalism of opposing Napoleon and and the salute as well. The salute, yeah, all that, yeah. But these, I mean, they're perverted by the Nazis, aren't they? I mean, they're not... Sort of purely. What's interesting about Nazis in Berlin is support was much stronger in the outlying areas in the city centre. Um, so areas like Potsdam um, uh, or any environment areas like that actually were really pro-Nazi, right in the middle, certainly in the working class districts, but even actually in areas like sort of Charlottenburg, Tegarten, and that you know, it, it, it wasn't nearly as strong. And it was it was weak in the in the solid working class districts um like reading and quotes back and that, that that that's where most of uh, the sort of, sort of you know, like where the socialists came from so um but again i think it gets back to this idea that the Berliners just aren't yeah uh, just don't like that idea of sort of of, of um a strong military authority which was so you know, immediately apparent with the nazis um but it was hitler never really forgave him for that i mean he he I, I think he's, he had aspirations that Berlin would sort of come behind him, but as we said earlier on, he just it, 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 he he couldn't see it working, and it, it seems so tragic that Berlin, which would suffer more than any other German city from Hitler's war, you know, should be so anti anti him and, and what he stood for. Yeah, the the image I think that summed it up best for me is you described. Um... When Hitler announced that he invaded, he had invaded Poland. Yeah, yeah. And you say the Nazi hierarchy were surprised and annoyed to see the streets empty. Yeah. There were no cheering crowds, no flower throwing, or a general mood of excitement and celebration yeah. as there had been in 1914. Even guys on a building site didn't even stop to listen, no. basically. I think that's it's very telling that. Um, I think it shows just how much opposition there was to the Nazis in Berlin. Um, and if you look at the resistance movements in the war, is there were some really brave Berliners um, who ran underground movements. Um, and there were all over Germany, true, but particularly in Berlin. I mean, they were in Munich and Hamburg too, but it does, in Berlin it seemed to crystallize. And the other thing that really struck me too was the um, how much Germany and Berlin ha- had lost. Like when the Enabling Act is passed, you have this great cultural exodus of the city's Jewish and, and artistic communities. I tell you what's a really good, interesting thing to do. To give you an example of that is go. Um, yeah, if you go into the 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 Humboldt University, that main building on the Unterdendenten, opposite the Babelplatz, uh, called the 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 Forum Friedrichanum, as the old Berliners call it, um, and that's actually Prince Henry's palace, um, Frederick the Great's brother's palace. 
go upstairs. They don't mind you doing this. And just look along the first floor corridor. It was a whole row of um, photographs, portrait photographs, of some of the great sort of academics, Berlin academics who, who fled, lucky ones who fled, several who were who had sent to concentration camps. Just gives you an idea, an, an, an example of it that actually this isn't just the sort of the mans and the grosses and, and people like that the the, fa- the famous um authors um going to america it is actually you know it goes deeper than that it's that a, a whole sort of intellectual class um and if hitler's wondering why in 1945 he hasn't got an industry that works or a, you know a country that functions it's because he's so many of the people who made it function you know have, have left it starts much earlier than people realize this. And you know, people saw the writing on on, on, on the wall um, and started to go from the from, from the early 1930s. Um, and it's only later that actually you get the kinder transport and you get the sort of a tragedy. There is um a new museum. I don't know if it's opened yet, but the Museum of Emigration being set up in the um uh, in the Anhalterbahnhof. Um I mean you've got the German diaspora that the results it's quite a lot of people will go back eventually but um it it does it, it does enormous damage um and then of course you have a whole Jewish pogrom that you know that um that that, that, that happens afterwards um so in 1930 roughly there were probably about um 200,000 Jews in Berlin by 1939 about 75,000 remain um and by the end of the war that's down to about 5,000 so it's pretty horrific, isn't it? You have a story about the pogroms. You quote a local woman describing men smashing the windows of Jewish shop. You say there, there's neither hatred in them nor indignation, neither frenzy nor anger. The onlooking crowd is silent and unemotional. Is this a spontaneous rage of the people finding vent, she asked herself? No, nothing of the kind. But if those five were ordered tomorrow to kill all the chimney sweeps in Germany with flails, they would go to it and leave no one alive. They would be without passion and without mercy. Not because they hated chimney sweeps, but because they loved obedience. Loved it so much that even the soul stood to attention before it. That's an utterly chilling image. It's a, it's a horrible quote, isn't it? Uh, I mean, it, it really is. I think it sums it up. That was Ruth Andreas Friedrich, who was a resistance leader. Became quite a well-known resistance leader. But what's so... Is sad about it, particularly in Berlin, is of course for Jews have been so much part of Berlin's life. And yeah, there have been, as we said earlier, there have been pogroms or pogroms in the in the early 16th century. But um Berlin of all the cities in Germany, if you like, had a, had the greatest degree of Jewish emancipation. Uh, I, I'm sure people take issue with me and say, no, there were lots of other cities that you know um that that that, that had a wonderful Jewish record too. And I think some did. Um, but certainly Berlin you know, had its feel, um, and it was a great synagogue. You can see it now, restored synagogue. It's only the front of it. Obviously, the rest of it was destroyed. But I mean, it, it was. I mean, that 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 was there before the cathedral. It's part of the reason that actually the Kaiser insisted on there being a cathedral. So yeah, no, it's a it's a tra- it's a tra- it's a tragic tragic time that finally get the Nazis are gotten rid of, and the the troubles of Berlin are far from over. You have the the Soviet occupation and technology and industry in Berlin came to an end at that time. I didn't realize that either. I thought it was, um, I thought that was also a result of just being so isolated because of the wall. 
And, you know, being so far east, I didn't realize it was because the Soviets ab- looted absolutely everything that was and wasn't nailed down. It's a bit of both, isn't it? I mean, it's a combination of that, of them looting everything and an awful lot of museum treasures, which we might come back to. It's also the fact that, um, of course, when as Germany began to very slowly recover, we had the airlift and the cutting off, so you couldn't get stuff in night of Berlin. Um, and by that stage, you know, people were much people were worried about Berlin's future. So we wanted to invest. They invested on the Ruhr. They invested in you know, the solid, safe Germany. So it's a combination of those factors. But yeah, it does. I mean, that is a major change again, one which I think people don't sort of notice that after the war, Berlin becomes a financial um, and uh, like government center. Um, and of course, it wasn't always the financial center. It only became the financial center in the 1870s. It wasn't a traditional financial center of Germany, which was again down on the on, on, in Frankfurt. I didn't realize that it had been such an industrial center as well. I mean, the center of electricity and. Uh, you're you're speaking from Siemensstadt. <laughs> Until I moved to this neighborhood, I mean. Yeah. Ah. I mean, it's extraordinary to have a neighborhood of a city named after industrial company, isn't it? Mm. And this um, entire district, it's massive. Yeah. Uh, and you know, Germany had more 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 homes in Berlin had electric light before they had running water. Hmm. Um, you know, it, it's 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 but it, that is one of the great losses. And again, it's one of the great sort of credits, I think, to Berlin, but actually they rebuilt a like a society and a um and a, 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 a an economy um you know, based on something completely different. I mean, the Soviet rape of the city was, I mean, it's so pointless so much. You know, on Earth, then, most of those machines then sat in railway sidings, never being used. I mean, it was almost sort of, it was part vindictiveness, part just sort of acquisitive, acquisitiveness, um, and part just, you know, why have you got this when we want it sort of thing. It wasn't, it, it, things weren't taken to a plan. And some of the raiding of the museums was, you know, equally pretty disgraceful. Um and a lot of that stuff is still in is still in in Russia. Um, a lot to come back. Um, and one of the triumphs, I think, of modern Berlin is Museum Island and the way that they actually you know, re, re, um, reunited the museums. So the other big period that everybody wants to um, hear about is the Cold War. And I'm hoping to do an entire podcast on life in the DDR. So rather than go into those details, I wanted to um, ask you about your own experience. So you mentioned earlier, this was your first military posting. I mean, what's, yeah. when when would that have been roughly in terms of sort of mm-hmm. East-West relations? Like what was the city like at that time? Um, well, it was still, the wall was still well up. Uh, so, I mean, it would have been late, when I first said, late 70s, I think, um, or early 80s. Um, and it was actually quite a difficult time in, in East-West relations. Um, I remember being, you know, when I first, when you took the military train up from West Germany and you went through the DDR into the Berlin periphery, you, know, you had to do a handover to a Russian officer. I remember, be, you know, being absolutely terrified meeting this Russian officer. You know, what, what, what was he going to be like? You know, was he going to be some sort of communist who tired over me and um, turned out to be a very geeky guy who just wanted cigarettes? You know, and it, it sort of brings the world um sort of back reality but it was um it was still very tense um and we were still in west germany the allied armies german american british were still being um mobile yeah we sort of had practice crash outs against against soviet soviet threat and of course yeah, as we all know when organizations countries like the soviet union are coming to their end they're that most dangerous and it was a worrying period. This was pre-Gorbachev. I mean, this was you know, the end of um, 
well, it was Andropov, right? It wasn't. It was the end of the, the end of, of of Brezhnev and and Andropov in that very sort of uncertain period, um, and people were nervous. And get, but going through, it was the extraordinary contrast in styles between East and West. Um, and you went through Checkpoint Charlie. We, we went in uniform, and you wandered around East Berlin, and it, it really was. Yeah, like it was another world. It was grey. There were people hurrying. They're looking at their feet in sort of rather threadbare clothes. It had this air of sort of gloom about it. In the, the city was still in a terrible state. So I mean, yeah, a lot had been rebuilt. A lot had been rebuilt actually in 1973 when they had the, um, the Berlin 750th birthday. A lot hadn't, um, and the buildings were still pockmarked with bullets. Actually, some of them still are. You drive drive out east to the Oder through Berlin now. You still see a lot of bullet marks in all the buildings, um, and you get into the shops, and there was nothing in them, and you'd feel you know you had we used to change our west marks to east marks um, at a very advantageous rate. The official rate was one to one. Well, of course, nobody was going to give you you know one west mark for an east mark. So we we would change it at a much better rate, and you could um, go out to dinner, you get to the opera, you get to concerts, you could um, buy things you know, ridiculously cheap, then you felt a bit uncomfortable doing that because, you know, these East Germans would look at you and think, you know, this is, um, this is not right. And I suppose it wasn't right in many ways. It, it was it was spooky. It, it was a very threatening environment. Um, and I remember going to his restaurant, a restaurant called Ganymede on Schiffbauer Dam. Have you been? I know, um, yeah. Again, go inside rather than sit outside on the pavement and you'll see, you know, the painted interior. That, 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 that was there in the 30s. And there was a band there um, at the end of the war who were quite famous. And some of them were still playing when we were going there in the, in the late 70s. I mean, ancient. And it was something so sad about it. You know, here are these guys who'd still playing away, you know, and having, almost like sort of a Titanic, playing through all this depression and violence and and, and war. Obviously, they're all long since dead now. Um but then it was only you know, 35 years after the end of the war. So um, a, a huge impression on me. It's part of the reason really that I've just had such fascination with the place ever since. It, it gets under your skin, Berlin. It, it, it give, you know, it's this unique experience. It's like nowhere else in Europe. How free were you to travel back and forth over the to, the, to East Berlin? I'm totally free. I mean, you had just had to tell you again. But I mean, under the four-power agreement, um, three-power agreement, the French came in later, um, and we, we didn't talk to East Germans, we only talked to Soviets because we didn't acknowledge them. So under the military government, you could go, and they would come over to the West, not very much. Um, the Soviets didn't really let their people travel. They did occasionally. You would see the odd, um, the, 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 the odd um, um, Soviets come over. But you had to be in uniform. Uh, and you just drive straight through Checkpoint Charlie. Um, and when the East Germans had to stop you, you sort of ignored them. Um and these Germans would try and stop you coming up and down. You, we used to drive from West Germany up the Autobahn into the, into the city, and these German police would try and stop you, um, almost as a sort of dare. And again, you just ignored them, um, and which infuriated them. But there wasn't much they could do about it. Well, you described an incident in the book where they they kind of tried to push their way like this, and it ended up with tanks facing off against each other right, right at checkpoint, Charlie. Yeah, I did. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean that, that that was before I was there. That that was earlier. That was um, but that's a famous photograph. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it, I mean there was a real tension. It was a well thought out strategy actually having forces in Berlin, and I'm always amazed that Stalin allowed it at the end of the war. Um, and I think he then bitterly regretted it. But of course, once 
you know, they were there. If anything happened to them, that was a sort of tripwire, if you like, um, which the you know the Russians couldn't afford to let happen. Um, so even though they, they were tiny numbers, and we were a brigade, we were called the Berlin Brigade, and the Americans had, I think, Cyclamen had slightly more, and the French had he had rather less. Um, the French actually just took over two um to, to two British areas um in, in the north. I mean, they weren't originally part of the, the Ultra Agreement. But, but and we actually had a very um sort of unprivileged um life. I mean, you were almost sort of slightly not above the law, you were subject to your own law, but I mean you were almost well, you were an occupying power really. And of course, you know, the real really good at understanding um and accommodations reach with West Berlin. And the relations between West Berlin and the Allies, you know, were were excellent. I mean, we were rallying a part, you know, but very rapidly, but all part of the same, you know, the same alliance as Germany came. Although, of course, West Berlin was technically separate to the to to to, to, to West Germany. It was an extraordinary time. Um, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm sort of quite privileged to have seen it. But then you think of a huge sadness and misery that it caused to so many people. You also think it's a very sad time. It's strange, like communism seems to be on the rise again, in the sense that these sort of self-described anti-capitalist um, students and activists in the West are turning to this completely failed ideology that caused so much misery for so, and so many deaths in so many places. Why do you think that is? Like, have we forgotten the lessons of the Cold War? Yeah, I think so. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, there is a, memories are a, a, a very short. I think there is always going to be, there are always going to be movements that protest and that's healthy and normal in society. But if you're going to protest, you need some sort of ideology. And the ideology of sort of those who don't have against those who have is is a very tempting ideology to adapt. But it does you know, ignore the, you know, the the huge sufferings that you know, most of the young generation don't really have much first-hand experience of, either in, in Russia or particularly in China. I mean, China is really extraordinary because if you think of a huge suffering inflicted by Mao, and you think, but actually, you think now how the Chinese Communist Party has reinvented itself. Um, so, I mean, he called himself communist, but it's no more communist than, you know, than, um, than, than um, you or I are. I mean, it, it's a completely different way of looking at the world. Um, so, I guess what other ideology is there? I mean, when they, um, there was a rather idiotic book published called The Fall, The End of History, when, you know, when uh, um, uh, but you know, any society needs uh, a sort of an anti-force. It needs something to polarize around to, say, it can polarize its opposition. And I think, I guess, there isn't really an awful lot else at the moment to, to which, which if, if you like, encapsulates that need for those who have less to be represented against those who have more. I think it's more that than a real. I didn't detect a huge return to Marx or to Marx Leninism. I think it's more. Uh, it, it's more a sort of a um, slightly naive form of social conscience, I think. Mm, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, it seems to me it's something that's so easily solved by travel. I mean, oh god, you just have to go to the formerly communist world or a currently communist country to see how absolutely miserable the life is in these places. And my daughter spends her life going to North Korea, which she, she... yes, yeah, yeah, I've been there twenty years ago. Oh yeah, I've never been. I mean, I've said I probably can't go. But no. <laughs> Shoot me. I don't think you'd be allowed in, no. <laughs> but she says absolutely fascinating. I mean, she just, she was just mesmerized just how completely you know, horrific it is, really. Mm. Okay. So but people don't, you're right. People 
you know, too much travel, I'm afraid, is to lie on the beach and um and it's I mean I'm sure like all of us, I reckon I learned more in the year I left school than I did all my time at school, really, just traveling around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I guess just the memories fade as well. I mean, I've, I grew up in the 70s and, and 80s, and I vividly remember lying awake at night being terrified that missiles were going to start flying over. Yeah. I mean, I lived in a very small town on the on the St. Lawrence River. So like we were right on the American border, but yeah. 80 kilometers from Ottawa, roughly. And yeah. I don't know if Ottawa was important enough to be flattened, but I'm, uh, yeah, I'm sure Ottawa was on there, but that is um it was a frightening time i mean it, you know and it was um uh, I, I mean i go back to my mom to my time in germany it was only i think once you know we got into the mid 80s it became clear that well i think it became clear that the russians were inept right they were unable to um do what we thought they might be able to do um yeah it, it, it was still alarming then again why berlin get back to berlin that's why it's that it's such a that was so fascinating for me because it was like a real manifestation here was here was this bad communist world close up. Here were these people with you know funny hats and you know, and, and silly walks and tanks and um and shops with nothing in them and 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 people being uh, people being miserable. Um, that's that that was my education, if you like. And this it must have been quite a a threatening feeling too to be this little isolated outpost of civilization surrounded by massive numbers of Russian troops. Yeah, you didn't really feel that so much. I didn't think as a soldier because you were sort of coming and going. I think for the Berliners it was. I mean, West Berliners, you, you, you know, in the 60s and 70s, they had a real difficulty in keeping the young population there. And you had, um, what was that um, benefit you got? Um, it's got some German nickname, I can't remember it is now, um, where you actually got a, a tax allowances and, and benefits for actually agreeing to stay and live in Berlin. You were exempted from conscription, although an awful lot of Berliners did go and get and join the Bundeswehr. I mean, the whole idea was to actually keep people there, but it was actually there was a real fear that it wasn't sustainable. Um, and yeah, it wasn't clear in the 70s at all that the wall would come down. And I think there's a lot of heart searching in Bonn and Berlin as to, you know, we, we've got to keep this place going. How are we going to sustain it? Um, hence all the, you know, the, the, the incentives for, for, for investing there and and living there and i think in a way you know um that drove a lot rather you were saying i was slightly disagreeing with you about the 1920s i think actually there's an awful lot of cultural interest and development in berlin you know after the wall goes up for exactly the reason that people you know want to um it, that sort of sense of threat that sense of isolation gave it a particular sort of frisson if you see what i mean yeah, it was a similar feeling to the 20s, that feeling of kind of yeah. being on the brink of disaster and everything. Yeah. It, it sort of speeds things up in a sense. Yeah, no, exactly that, yeah. But are you going to stay living there now? Are you going to? For now, yeah. we've been. It's been six years. I mean, as you say, it's a it's a place that we just kept coming back to over and over um, yeah. to visit year after year. We were living in Malta at the time, and chance to sublet a place came up here, and um, we jumped at it, and... Yeah, the longer we stay, the harder it is to leave. It seems. Yeah, it's an easy it's an easy place to live, isn't it? I've, I've I come and go. Actually, not so much busier than last year. I've been coming, going endlessly, and I just you just sort of you you get there and you feel you've always been there. You know, you just sort of slide into it. You know, there's no getting you. There's no you don't acclimatize to Berlin. You're there. You know, as they say, you, know, you arrive at the railway station, you are a Berliner. It's a great. It doesn't judge you, Berlin, at all. You don't notice that. You know, you can do anything in Berlin, really. Mm. 
And that is a bit of a hangover from not just the 1920s. I think it's always been a bit like that. Yeah, that's what interested me in your book too, that that core thread of um, character that, that the city has. Oh. No matter who comes here, they, they seem to be just assimilated to this to this particular Berlin character. And the character of the yeah. city, somehow the spirit of place sort of carries throughout. It, 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 it really does, actually. And um, I mean, actually, I love that bit of Germany too. I mean, I love I love that sort of something about those rather flat Brandenburg countryside, which I need to explore a lot more. I, I mean, I've got lots of that, um, that, um, to come and do so. Yeah, it's a fascinating area. So, so the book is called Berlin: The Story of a City, and uh, anyone who knows Berlin will enjoy it as much as I did. And those who haven't been here will, I think, read it and find themselves planning a trip. So. Thank you very much for taking the time to discuss it with me, Barney. I've really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed the book. Thank you very much, Ryan. It's lovely when people enjoy my books, and um, it was a huge fun to write, and um, I'm delighted to have been able to share some of it with you this afternoon. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on Books About Place at ryanbernard.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated.